The reading is taken from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 13, verses 6 to 11 and 15 to 22. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learnt about the evil thing that Eliashab had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with all the grain offerings and the incense. I also learnt that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore I warned them against selling food on that day People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. How are we all today? Okay, who's excited about Christmas? 
Good. That is a good. That is a good. That is a good number of hands. Last week I was preaching at another church and I asked who was excited about Christmas and uh, one person out of the entire congregation put up their hand. Now I should point out there were no children present, but even so, um, it was a little uh, surprising. Uh, but they cheered up uh, by the end. And uh, Christmas is coming. Advent is here. I must admit this is not explicitly an Advent sermon, though, although I will uh, return to the second coming of Jesus at the end. Uh, Because, of course, as the reading has just uh, revealed, we are finishing our series on Nehemiah today. And uh, I want to ask a a quick question for us just to turn to our neighbour, just to get us thinking uh, about it. And the question is this, what stops a Christian community fulfilling their call? Okay, what stops a Christian community fulfilling their call? So why don't you just take a minute or so, just uh, introduce yourself to your neighbour if you don't already know them, and share your answers to that question. Okay, Let, let's just have a little flavour of what you came up with. Sorry, it's always frustrating. You can't have a proper discussion, but just hopefully it just gets us thinking. Anyone want to put up their hands and just share, you know, in a, in a sentence or half a sentence, what sort of things you came up with? Just one thing, perhaps. And Just time that we try to do too much. Yep, try to do too much. Yep. Yep. Liz? Laziness. Laziness, yeah. That's an issue, isn't it, for for probably all of us at some point. Yeah. Fear of man. Fear of man, yeah. Or even fear of your wife. (laughs) Actually, I don't think that's not a problem for me, obviously. (laughs) Uh, The message isn't special enough for us. Messages are... The message is not special enough for us. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that. Yeah, anything else? Well, we thought about business of everyday business. Uh, we got busy about everything and yeah. forgot to do. And another thing that we thought is we keep uh, internally, you know, we spread the word to other people as well. Yeah, so we keep things to ourselves and the busyness of life, absolutely. Yep, one more. 
Too internally focused. Too internally focused as opposed to those outside. Yeah, absolutely. Good answers. So there's lots of different reasons, aren't there? Um, and I'm certainly going to be thinking about that topic today. Uh, because I have to say, um, I don't know about you, but as you read uh, the final chapter of Nehemiah, it is a little bit disappointing. There's no great finale, no great climax like West Ham's win against Chelsea yesterday <laughs> with an 87th minute winner, which I know has warmed all of your hearts. <laughs> it's not like that in Nehemiah. We had the finale last week, didn't we? When Sophie got to preach, lucky Sophie. And I get this, you know, bit of a downer, really. Um, and it must have been a shock, certainly, to the people of Israel, because uh, the man who came back after his trip to Persia was no gentle Nehemiah, meek and mild, softened by experience age and Persian good food and wine. Rather, it's a chapter in which the people of Israel find themselves chastised and disciplined. And in one case that we didn't actually read to a shocking degree. What's the reason for that then? Well, I don't think it's that Nehemiah has an anger problem. There's no indication of that. Or even that he takes their backsliding too personally as some sort of slight upon himself. I don't think that's the issue either. Rather, it's because he recognizes the seriousness of what's at stake and of Israel's spiritual calling. And he desperately doesn't want the tragedy of the exile to be repeated again. And I'm sure we can understand that. That's why it matters. But here's the thing. So too does our calling matter as individuals and as a church, so too does our obedience, our devotion, and so too do the prospects of our rebuilding leading to our fruitfulness and growth and the long-term health and viability that we need. So we need to take notice. And I think it's one of the reasons why, even though it surprises us, and you perhaps wouldn't choose to write a book this way, Nehemiah finishes on a little bit of a downer. I think it's because, yes, it's an honest record of the truth, and this is what happened when he went back to Persia, but also as a warning to the Christian communities and even the Jewish communities before Jesus of the future, especially those like us going through the sort of re-envisioning and rebuilding that we've been undertaking this term. For the proof of the pudding is in the eating to borrow that popular expression. And that means the test of our rebuilding that we focused on in this series this term is what's happening in one year or 18 months or two years time, not how we respond in the moment. Has it had a lasting impact or was it just a brief burst of enthusiasm that soon petered out? So today we're taking the benefit of that final chapter of Nehemiah to learn from it, to learn from what went wrong, and to think about how to deliver on the promises that we've made. How to keep on going so that we keep on growing. And I'm sure that's what you want for us all as well. So I've stripped down what I want to say to two essential principles, which hopefully are everything that we need to pass that test. So let's pray that God softens us and strengthens us ready for that road testing that we will face. Father God, 
please take these words of Nehemiah and please prepare us for the harder challenge, not of responding to the message of this series in the moment, but to putting it into practice that it would bring lasting growth and change, encouragement and devotion to you. For your glory we pray. Amen. Okay, so on with the sermon. And uh, my first principle of the two that I'm going to be sharing is taken, of course, from the words of Jesus himself, which you'll recognize many of you. Give to God what is God's. Give to God what is God's. And I've chosen that because for me, that is the principle which links the three failures that Nehemiah highlights in those verses that we had read. And you'll have picked up the context um, from that and from other reading that you've done, which is that uh, for 12 years, Nehemiah has been back in Jerusalem. He is Jewish, but he'd grown up in Persia. And he'd come with permission from the king of Susa to help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He'd achieved a lot. We've learned all about that this term, and it's encouraged us as we've seen it. But he always had to go back. That was part of the deal. He was sent with military and financial backing, and now he returns to resume his duties in in Persia, or at least the feedback on how he'd got on. Now, we don't have any record of those conversations when he went back, unlike the one where he asked to come in the first place in chapter 2. But what's clear is that after an appropriate period of time, he once again requests permission to come to Jerusalem, and it's once again given. But to a situation that's very different from the one he'd left. As we heard last week, he'd left with the people highly committed to worship, obedience, generosity in giving, and generally in a good place. But whilst he'd been away, things had tragically declined. Now, the first failure was the doing of um, Eliashib, or Eliashib, I don't know how you pronounce it, the priest who'd been put in charge of the temple storerooms and who actually later became high priest. And this was a classic example of a spiritual leader putting, ingratiating themselves with the secular political rulers ahead of the priorities of God. For he had given away a significant storeroom in the temple to Tobiah, a high-ranking Ammonite official. Now, you might think, well, what's the big deal with that? That doesn't really matter. It's just a neutral favor, isn't it? But not when you read the earlier chapters of the book. For Tobiah was the man who we learned earlier had done absolutely everything to oppose all that Nehemiah was seeking to do. And the reason why Eliashib has brought him into the temple in that way, I think is fairly obvious from the end of chapter 13 that we didn't hear read, where it tells us he'd married his son off to the daughter of Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah's partner in crime, in opposing all that Nehemiah is doing. It suggests a close relationship between the three of them. In short, this was a man who cared more about friendship with the world and the two big Gentile players in Israel and Jerusalem politics at that time. Then he did faithfulness to God's commands or his role as a priest. And from every point of view, this was disastrous. In the distraction it would bring to the temple and Eliashib's own ministry, as well as the difficulty it obviously brought to getting enough food to the Levites, 
given this was where their food was meant to be stored. Alongside it, devastatingly, what it communicated to the watching Israelites, who seeing their own priests so compromised, had little motivation to live righteously themselves. Now, with its greater focus on the spiritual battle, the New Testament instructs us to do not give the devil a foothold. Yet that was effectively what Eliashib had done, right in the heart of the temple itself, explaining Nehemiah's furious reaction, which I have to say foreshadowed Jesus' own reaction in the temple on Palm Sunday, didn't it, as he cleansed it of all of that market trading. But far worse than that, I think, was the breaking of the promises to provide for the Levites, which actually came from the Israelites across the board, the second major failure. And we heard in the passage what had happened. They stopped giving the things that they had committed to give. And so the Levites and the musicians and other temple officials had to go back to their fields in the rural areas of Israel, weren't able to serve in the temple anymore because they had nothing to live on. And Nehemiah understandably rebukes them and says, why is the house of God neglected? So all the hard-won financial commitments the people had made in the previous chapters were abandoned, it seems, almost as soon as Nehemiah had left. And you can only imagine that the joyful and glorious worship of the temple that we, we read about last week had actually withered to a pale shadow of what it could have been. And then there's a third issue, which is that they weren't giving God the time, the worship, and the devotion that he was due through the way they behaved, in particular on the Sabbath, that precious day meant to be dedicated to God. Now, it's not clear to me the extent to which the Israelites simply uh, initiated this themselves or responded to the actions of the Gentile people around them. But what's clear is that a vast Sabbath economy had built up in Jerusalem, in which goods were being widely traded. And the Jews were participating fully, whether by simply buying them or actually selling them themselves. And of course, in itself, this was a breaking of the Old Testament law that they had resolved to uphold. But it also clearly distracted them from fully participating in the Sabbath temple worship. Their hearts were divided And the devotion and the intimacy God was looking for from them was destroyed. And what can we learn from these things? Well, we too need to keep the enemy out. For them, it was Tobiah and his presence literally in the temple. For us, it's Satan metaphorically seeking to occupy the prime space in our lives and our hearts. And giving him a foothold is whenever we decide we're willing to compromise on something God has told us to do or told us not to do. To say to God, I'll give you so much, but this bit of my life I'm keeping for myself. For example, we might be holding back on what we know God is calling us to give financially, which is a bit of a theme of this latter part of Nehemiah. Or we might be holding back in obeying in the way God is calling us to act morally. Or we ourselves might be holding back in the area of the Sabbath too. Now we know from a verse in Colossians and Christian tradition, we don't have quite such a strict interpretation of what keeping the Sabbath means 
for us as Christians, especially when it comes to, you know, perhaps the old visit to the shop or a restaurant. However, the principle that we give God the first fruits of our time and attention through coming to church on the first day of the week clearly does apply. God wants us to prioritize spending time with him and indeed with our fellow Christians. Why? Because it's about ensuring that once a week we gather for worship, lifting our eyes and our hearts to our heavenly Father. Ensuring that once a week we do think about that big picture of God's purposes and gain perspective on the challenges and the opportunities in the week to come. And that once a week we do have the rest that our body, soul and mind require with all the benefits for physical, mental and spiritual health that that brings. And for those of us working, perhaps with a tendency to overworking, we really need to heed that advice. Not to mention the time with our Christian family and the experience of true community and fellowship that God longs for us to enjoy. I realize I'm preaching to the converted. You're here today. But one thing we have noticed in the pandemic and its aftermath is that not everyone is coming back as often as they did before. And we're missing out. Missing out on something precious that we celebrate too, that those who can't come can watch online and join in with what we're doing today. So, Sabbath is about keeping God in his rightful place in our lives. So we receive his blessing. And it's about godly and healthy balance in our lives too. And so too is giving sacrificially. So do talk to Howard um, after the service at the back if you want to talk about how you can get that aspect of putting God first right in your lives. So that's my first principle. Giving to God what is God's, whether it's in time or money, or indeed our service, our gifts, our worship, and our love, all of which would be valid topics for sermons in themselves. So my second principle and final principle is this, and it's equally important if we're to see God's purposes fulfilled at St. Paul's in the longer term. And it's this, keep on keeping on, keep on keeping on. And I'll never forget the the final gathering of probably the closest Christian Christian community I was ever part of. I was at university um, at a college where uh, we had 300 undergraduates and we actually had 70 Christians Um, in that number, which was amazing for my generation, a phenomenal ratio. And it was the most wonderful community, Christians of every shade, um, many, many different denominations and personalities and experiences. But we came together in great unity. Loads of people came to faith. Many of us have gone on to become ministers, actually. And it was just the most wonderful expression of what Christian unity is meant to be all about. But I'll never forget the final time that we spent together We went away um, up to uh, St. Ives, uh, not in Cornwall, but in northern Cambridgeshire for a day. And we had a guest speaker just to help us uh, to reflect on all that had happened in our time together and also prepare us for what's to come. And we expected really the whole day to be, uh, you know, a typical sort of farewell where you celebrated all that had happened. Um, And uh, instead, though, the speaker had some very, very challenging words 
And he spent much of the time warning us how likely or how possible it was that many of us would fall away from faith. How the pressures to give up when it was not so easy would be almost overwhelming. And he was right, actually. We know that the 20s is the, the, the decade of our lives when people are least likely to go to church and most likely to fall away. And though it was uncomfortable to hear, I think it was exactly what we needed to hear. And as far as I'm aware, the vast majority of us have heeded that warning and have kept on going. Now, I don't know if Nehemiah had failed to warn the people of Israel of the challenges that they faced when he went. But what I do know is his furious dealing with them in this chapter is a warning to us. For keeping on keeping on means knowing it will be difficult, being realistic about that, knowing that the temptations will come, but knowing too that we have one big advantage over the Israelites. What's that? Holy Spirit, it's good. I heard, I, could, I couldn't hear what most of you were saying, but the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit inside us, convicting us, strengthening us, and giving us, if we want it, the willpower and the perseverance that we need. But it's clearly also about accountability. Nehemiah effectively held to keep people accountable, didn't, didn't he? And, and they ran into trouble as soon as he left. But let's be honest, it's not a Nehemiah figure that we need. Now, of course, a vicar has a role. I'll do my bit in preaching and challenging conversations when I can. But what we really need is to form our own accountability partners in terms of the people that we keep honestly informed of how we're doing in each potential area of disobedience or struggle in our lives. Now, of course... We could choose our marriage partner if we're in that situation. But, you know, to be honest, sometimes I think it's better that it's someone else, not least if they're not quite on the same page. Just find someone who knows how you're really doing, who you share that with, and ideally where it's reciprocated, and they do likewise with you. That's the accountability that Nehemiah brought for a season, but which they needed for the rest of their lives. And we all have the opportunity to be accountable to someone so that we really do keep on keeping on, sometimes because we're too embarrassed to report back that we haven't. It's there to help us. So that's accountability. Another is rhythm that we have in our lives. And I'm not referring to your ability on the dance floor here, which my wife will uh, testify is absent in her husband. (laughs) I'm referring to that pattern of life that we follow and whether the things that we routinely do the rhythm that we've built into our lives is actually set up to help us to succeed and flourish and maintain our spiritual vibrancy or whether it doesn't now of course church is part of that so is life group and any regular ministry or um or team on which we serve but what about the rhythm of your life in terms of Uh, your own personal worship, study, and prayer. I didn't mean to imply before that if we come to church, well, everything's fine for the rest of the week. Church is just something that we do together that actually we're to do individually the rest of the time. And I, I I think I know that you know that. 
And it's often those things, the daily routine, the personal worship, the things that we don't have to do because no one can see us, but which we choose to do, which actually really determine how closely we walk to God and whether we see the opportunities he's giving us, whether we speak courageously as he leads us and whether we make the right choices to live for him when those choices are hard. At the end of the day, the people backslid then in Nehemiah's time because they had stopped listening to God, which inevitably led to a conscious or sometimes unconscious disobedience of his will. And the moment we stop reading and feeding on Scripture regularly and allowing it to convict and transform and inspire us, we're in trouble too. Some of our sins are conscious, aren't they? The, the ones, the temptations we're particularly aware of. We can all think of them. But others, and the really dangerous ones, are less so. Like the sensitivity we fail to show. The opportunities we fail to take because we don't see them. The self-centeredness and the worldliness that unconsciously takes a grip on all of our lives. For our hearts are not naturally holy. They're not naturally faithful. And we have a sinful nature, every one of us. And so ensuring that our hearts are protected and not divided. And that that passion for God is nurtured, is as vital for us as it was for Israel then. If God's purposes for our church and our lives are to be fulfilled. For otherwise, there are other gods who will move in and start taking possession of us, just as they did for Israel time and time again. And it can be any number of things. It can be people who are not Christians, who have an unhealthy influence over us. It's not that we don't want them in our lives. Of course we do. It's an opportunity. But it's us who's meant to be influencing them, not them, us. Or it can be other idols like materialism or comfort or power or sex or security or sport or, su- or su- status or success. All of which can undermine our commitment and our passion for God. Keeping on, keeping on is keeping those other things out. And the best way to do that is to keep God in the center of our lives where he belongs. So make sure your heart is devoted by having the right rhythm in your life. Don't compromise when the temptation to skip worship, skip Bible study, skip fellowship, skip prayer comes your way. And commit to a rhythm that puts God first, feeds your soul, and keeps you hearing his voice, responding to his prompting, and enjoying his blessings in every area of your life. And of course, keeping on, keeping on, ultimately is about persistence. Which means continuing even when you don't want to. Even when it's easier not to. And even when you're struggling with disappointment, discouragement or doubt, as we will at times. For as individuals, fulfilling our call and fulfilling our call as a church, persistence is the key. Ultimately, it's what Israel was lacking as soon as the good leader was gone. But with God as our leader, with Jesus as our leader, through the presence of Holy Spirit inside us, we can persist, we can keep going, we can push through the apathy, the resistance 
and indeed the spiritual attack that will come our way, especially as we make that journey together, standing firm hand in hand so that we can together persevere through the months and the years to come. And ultimately, we do these things because this was the path Jesus walked. Next term, I'm really excited because we've got a series that I believe will lock us in to Jesus' leadership and his example in our lives, taking us back to his teaching and his calling of us, but in a fresh and challenging way. The series will be called Better Than, and it's looking at every aspect of our lives and asking, how can it be better than it was before? And that's going to be an opportunity for a reset button in every aspect of our lives as we look at those different topics, whether we're exploring Christianity for the first time or we're building on a lifetime of faith. I think it's going to be the right thing at the right time for us as a church, and I'm excited about it. And it will finish with the journey to the cross in the lead up to Easter as we once again marvel at our leader, Jesus And his example of persistence, his example of keeping on, keeping on, his example of giving God what is God's, and ultimately his example of love, mercy, and grace. And it's with that that I want to finish now. For ultimately, we don't need a new Nehemiah. For we have everything we need in our leader, Jesus, who loved and taught and gave us everything we need. My prayer, and I hope that your prayer, is that when he returns, as we remember at Advent, he will find us ready, unlike what Nehemiah found in Israel, where we are still giving our all for him, Because he gave everything for us. Amen. I want to pray for us now.